This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, so we're here with Mong Mong Chen. How's it going? Great. And uh, Mong Mong works with Seed Studio, doing uh, business development and head of U.S. operations, and also worked with Marcelo and Colin and Will and I on the Poplet Factory back at Solid 2015 a few months ago. That yeah. was for the for the uh, listeners who haven't heard of it. The Pop Up Factory was this extraordinary thing that we had at the Solid Conference in June of 2015, where uh, Mung Mung, David, and and several other people that David just mentioned actually built a production line for electronics on the floor of the conference that operated in front of people who were there and produced wearable devices, electronics from not from scratch, not from like a big pile of silicon, but Pretty close to from scratch. Yes, and we had a lot of people taking pictures of the pick and place machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty wild. We had a uh, we had a full electronics SMT assembly line with yeah. spools of components. Um, we had a test jig where mm-hmm. I have this awesome picture of you like wearing huge like hipster DJ headphones <laughs> and like programming boards on the test jig. Yeah, and then uh, we had form labs come in with twelve 3D printers like making computationally generated enclosures, and then. We manufactured everything and gave it to people at the conference, yeah. and it was cool. You know, I did send the pictures back to the C team in China, and then they saw like so many people taking pictures of like electronics line, and for them, they're like, "Why is this interesting to people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they just right, don't right. get it. They're like, we see this every day. They don't get what's the novelty part of it. But I guess yeah. here, people just don't really know how things are." Yeah. put together that's kind of why i mean that's why we wanted to put that experience together because you know on this side of the ocean everyone has this mystical idea about hardware um and like products that are handed down to us from upon high by the marketing <laughs> departments of apple and samsung but no one actually really thinks about like what it looks like inside the kitchen and it sounds very magical and and scary you know it's not just like you can write code on your computer but like actual manufacturing. So mm-hmm. the goal of that was it's difficult to bring the entire conference to a factory. So maybe we could bring a factory to the conference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it was really funny seeing the, the difference in perceptions. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's surprising to a lot of people that manufacturing can be that straightforward actually. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a lot of complexity built into the manufacturing process yeah. before the components get to the floor of the factory, but the assembly process yeah, it's, it doesn't need to be as mystical as it is. We do a lot of like kind of user education because people coming to us always asking how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. But it's mm-hmm. really much more than that. You, uh, We want people to kind of understand the manufacturing process so that they know why their design needs to be tweaked in a certain way to kind of take cater to the manufacturing assembly process. Right. <clears throat> so you guys actually have a small manufacturing facility out in the East Bay, right? Yeah, yeah. And are are interested in well, t- tell us about like the actual 
you know, volumes that you're interested in, types of products that like you're trying to figure out how to work with people to make out there? Because it's a it's a pretty unique thing, I think. For sure. Um, it's a pretty simple uh, electronics assembly line. We uh, can handle likely up to 200 units. Um, I wouldn't do anything beyond that, but mostly... Um, Depending on the product maturity level, we most time most of the time do like five, ten pieces up to fifty. And by the time uh, a product's mature enough, um, people usually prefer it to be made in Shenzhen in our um, manufacturing facility and back in China. Mm-hmm. But so, two hundred units roughly is like the break even yes. point between the two. Yeah. Um, it really depends on whether you want something fast so that you can get the feedback um, mm-hmm. very live. Because so, some people, they want to see the security of, okay, want, I want to see this thing being made. And if anything bad happens uh, in the process, I can catch it uh, in the middle instead of waiting for China to be done and have it shipped here. And then find out that feedback loop is just much longer when you're working with someone overseas and having things done overseas. So the purpose of setting up a manufacturing or prototyping facility in the U.S. is exactly because we have a lot of clients who are going through these prototype to production stage and um, they really find it hard when they're working with someone from abroad um, to kind of bring that prototype live and that feedback loop is just way, way uh, too slow if you have to kind of Skype and work Mm -hmm. with the time differences Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And also the main factories are not really set up for doing prototype runs of five to 10 units either, right? Like you usually have to pay a lot of money up front so that you can get how much, like, I mean, minimum volume over at the main place in Shenzhen, what would you say? Like hundreds maybe? Yeah, hundreds and hundreds. Mm -hmm. Yes. So even like, even our facility in Shenzhen is focused on small batch manufacturing, uh, but uh, that small batch meaning 500 to like 5k or 10k something in that range and then the other factory that you talk to they usually require minimum quantity of um, 10k or something like that Mm -hmm. so this is part of a continuum just to kind of like recap you start with up to 200 units made here in california at your Mm -hmm. at your small facility yeah uh, and then from 200 to Roughly 10,000? Yes. You would do it in Seed Studios' own factory in Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. And then above that, you would go into kind of the larger you contract manufacturing. You would just have a sea of suppliers that you can work with in Shenzhen because there's so many mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. So this is a big part of like the newly accessible onboarding process to the mm-hmm. Shenzhen ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? That a lot yeah. of people talk about you. Um it's no longer a barrier where you have to commit to selling 10,000 units of something before mm-hmm. you could even get a phone call with a factory. Yeah. It's really not just about doing like small batch. It's really about a mindset shift of doing something quickly and seeing if it actually works or not mm-hmm. uh, without committing too much of the overhead cost yeah. of, you know, doing tons of millions. Of, uh, uh, but there, there still is a little bit of overhead cost though, right? Like, I mean, yes, figuring out how to like, you know, what kinds of specifications do I send, you know, as a user, what kinds of specifications do I send to you guys? Like, you know, there's no, there's no standards for like how to put together a build book or like how you organize your Gerber files or like assembly instructions or anything. And I think you've talked a little bit about the the user education types of stuff that you guys are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. How, so how is that going? And like, what do you see? Like, I mean, what's it like, what's it like, you know, on the overseas side, trying to work with people from over here who don't know anything at all about manufacturing? And um, like, how can we make that, pro- that process easier? Yeah, I think um, from our part, we do do a lot of user education. And part of that standardization, we try to send out things that, okay, these are the things that we need. Um, but sometimes people don't really necessarily carefully read what you're writing. So <laughs> we kind of have to go back and forth a little bit. And then one biggest misconception about that people have is that things definitely cost way, way, way cheaper in China. 
which is true in some cases, but it's not always true. Hmm. It especially depends on the quantity that you're manufacturing for. So um, is it setup and tooling costs that are that are not necessarily cheaper in China? Or? Um, and I'm talking about in terms of like component sourcing, for example, okay. like even those things. I, basically, the supply chain here and the supply chain in China is just significantly different. Uh, in China, things are, I would say, is much, much more fragmented. Things are kind of laying around. Um, it's much easier if you're trying to find anything that's not in DigiKey, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. um other kind of weird components, um, you can likely find a very good cost uh, slash um, performance, that kind of ratio. Mm-hmm. But anything that's on DigiKey that's pretty commonly uh, used the, for small batch manufacturing, mm-hmm. the supply chain here in the U.S. is actually um, not significantly that much different from that. Of for China. like things that are just like, huh. a, like a couple hundred units, it's yeah. not significantly that yeah. much different. Is yeah. there a DigiKey type thing in China? It's like a reputable there's, wholesaler. There's, there's a DigiKey stuff. office in in China. Yeah. They got one really? in Shanghai, right? Yeah. So Digity, uh, sometimes in China we use Digity as well. So it really depends on the components mm-hmm. and, and the type of uh, mm-hmm. components you're looking for. Yeah, because quality is a big thing. Like yes. not not all components are created equal. <laughs> yes. You know, like, I mean, you can, you know, DigiKey is going to be more expensive, but you are have a higher guarantee of like knowing that they're all going to be fine. Yeah. But I mean, you also can go down the street and like go to Hotrunk Bay or whatever and probably find something for... 30% cheaper or something, I guess, yeah. usually is what I usually see. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have a higher instance of like things that are just like a little bit wonky and like maybe not quite to spec. And so it depends on what kind of product you're making. And like, if you're willing to take that risk, you know, there's, you pay for, you get, you get what you pay for all yeah. over the world. That's how, that's how it works. Let's talk about uh, the the parts library that you're yeah. developing at the C. Open parts library, yeah. Uh, the idea is that you have a, a standard library of mm-hmm. how many parts is it now? I think it's getting close to 1,200. Yes. Standard library of, yeah, those 1,200 parts. And, mm-hmm. and the idea, if I'm correct, is that yes. you, you can design a piece of electronics to use only those parts. Mm-hmm. And if you do, then manufacturing at seed is extraordinarily fast and inexpensive. Yeah, yeah. So we call it the open parts library. So um, if you do search open parts library seed, um, you'll find a web page that gives you all the components, all the specifications, as well as all the design files and all the EDA formats, um, mm-hmm. whichever one that you're new- using. The idea is that you can use these files from the beginning when you're designing, and then by the time you want to actually make a prototype, we have all of these libraries handy, as also as well as the supply chain of that. So we have all of these in stock in our factories uh, handy as well. So we don't really need to go out to source these components mm-hmm. after you place an mm-hmm. order so that uh, lead time will be much, much shorter. Um, also, because we have the standardized library, we the, these are generated from people placing uh, prototyping orders um, mm-hmm. through our websites and from the people that we work with. So these are um, much better um, solidified in terms of quantity um, people has been using it. So you, essentially you're sharing supply chain uh, with tons of makers who are doing small mm-hmm. batch manufacturing as well. All right. So, 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 so I guess the process. So what's the process? Say I'm a maker who's like made a cool little gadget, like a yeah. Arduino clone or like some little Bluetooth device that mm-hmm. I want to be an accessory that I want to use to pitch my startup or something. And I've designed it in Eagle and I have a design and I like maybe got a board made and soldered one together myself. And now I'm ready to make 10 of them. And then if those work, I will want to make several hundred of them. Yes. So I go to the seed studio 
website. Yes. And then like what happens? So it's like I go to the Fusion website and then yes. there's like a form that you fill out. Because yeah. I mean, usually, usually when when I order PCBs, it's it's a pretty high touch type of process, right? Like mm -hmm. if I'm using advanced circuits or one of the many other like sort of more traditional board houses, it's like you have to find the sales rep and you have to email them mm -hmm. your Gerber files and then they call you on the phone and then you talk about it. But I mean, one way is that you guys reduce cost is that you've automated some part yes. of the process. So I am interested in, I think the listeners would be interested yeah. in hearing like what actually happens. So you go and you fill out a form and you like upload your yeah, Gerber Yeah, you files. upload your Gerber and I'll, based on the specification, I'll give you a live quote. And then hmm. if you want to do PCBA, so meaning having co components on it, you can upload your bomb list as well. I will try to automatically match that with our components library. Um, it won't be perfect. Some of the components, if you use very, very, um, you know, weird ones, uh, yeah, yeah, weird ones, then you probably won't find it. But usually, it's pretty good at kind of matching with the library and then pulling in the prices. So everything will kind of be given to you. So you'll just be able to pay online, and, mm -hmm. then. and then it goes, and then then on the other side. Mm. Um, those guys are receiving many orders from many people over the yeah. course of the week. And then like every Tuesday they have a big meeting and they figure out what's going on. And then do they, do the, they call you if there's a problem or like, how does that? Yeah. So for the prototype, so this is really how, the, I think for DFM, yeah. design from, but they're done for manufacturing. It usually happens at a much later stage. So I would say beyond 10 boards, like when you're mm -hmm. at five to 10 board stage, you're really testing if this thing works or not. Mm -hmm. After you get it right. to work, you redesign it for optimization yeah because mm -hmm. well, like yeah because like designing a manufacturing process is like a whole nother design exactly. process after you've already completed the actual physical exactly. design of so your thing. so usually at the five to ten board stage we're really testing if the you know the schematic design is okay yeah. if it's it's working um and sometimes those prototypes come out doesn't work we'll figure out what's wrong with the design so from that online service that dfm doesn't really necessarily happen we'll actually call people only if for example the the files have some problems like broken or something yeah yeah for uh, and then we can't really see what we what you're looking for in terms of prototype and then after that stage um if you're ready for 50 or 100 or anything beyond that, we actually have a, we call like a business project manager who kind of interact with you and can talk, actually talks to you. So we'll be interacting with an actual person and yeah. for quantity beyond that. And then um, as part of that service, um, you receive a DFM report from the team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool because I mean, I think for most things, you don't usually think about actually being able to have a product manager assigned to you mm -hmm. and your project if you're like, only going to be making like a hundred or something out of yeah. your basement. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, you know, that, that one of the reasons you were interested in the pop-up factory is that it would give the people who are creating this stuff a better sense of what goes into it, which mm -hmm. makes them easier for you guys to work with yes. uh, because people understand the, the manufacturing process and the importance of it the and considering the design. Mm -hmm. But do you think we're actually headed for a point where the designers of these things don't need to understand the manufacturing process? Like you guys yeah. do so much. Um, is it getting abstracted to that point? I think, the, the market's so wide, and as we go into this whole IoT thing, there's going to be more and more people who are interacting with the hardware. So there will be always necessarily teams who, for the product that you design, you need to understand your hardware. And, and for those people, they really need to learn about what the manufacturing process is. And there's also people who might think 
their um, competitive advantage in the market is really honing in on that IoT application software layer. Mm-hmm. And then for those people, they may not necessarily need to kind of get into hardware if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And then that's why we actually have a new Kickstarter campaign coming up for exactly kidding to those people. So the Kickstarter campaign, uh, it's called Wheel Link, W-I-O uh, Link. Uh, so it's shortened for wireless input and output. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yes. And then it's basically a um, Wi-Fi. It's based on the ESB8266 Wi-Fi. This is no. the, yeah. So so for our users or listeners, our users, the users of our podcast <laughs> um, who may not be familiar with this ESP2866 part, um, it's a Wi-Fi module that's been taking the sort of open source and hacker communities by storm because mm-hmm. it's like very, very, very inexpensive. Um, the community, when it first came out, the community kind of rose up and wrote Arduino bindings for it just like automatically. And now everybody uses it and everything. And it's way cheaper than most commercially available modules. And, and so you guys... Because yeah. Wi-Fi has always been the... The hardest, the, yeah, the suckiest part of yeah. hardware, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the new guys being open source, awesome manufacturing people have now made this Kickstarter that in- incorporates that into it. Yeah, so it um, incorporates that uh, very popular module as part of that board, as um, well as it has the standard Groove connectors that kind of is compatible with the Grove library. And for people who are not as familiar with Groove, it's basically a library of uh, sensors and actuators that C produces um, based on a common connector, mm-hmm. um, essentially. So you are able to kind of plug and play uh, Lego for electronics. Modular, modular blocks. Exactly. The cool part of it is that it comes with an app um, where it allows you to kind of program um, with the app that kind of drives the, the hardware. Um, and then also, for example, you want to connect the board with any kind of um, Grove modules. The drivers for those Grove modules are already incorporated in the app. So whatever you connect, you kind of drag it to the app and then it kind of automatically uh, syncs up the firmware and then you'll be able to um, upload the firmware through the cloud onto the hardware. So basically, you don't really need to learn about how to talk to the hardware at all. You will just be able to kind of control everything from, from the app. For us being a hardware and manufacturing company in the Bay Area, we in all the compre- uh, conferences, we talk to so many people who are experts at software, but and they have amazing applications that can be built into hardware. And, and once it's combined with hardware, it can do really amazing things. But historically, when you are trying to build an IoT application, not only you have to figure out the hardware part, you have to figure out the, the network, you kind of have to figure yeah. out the firmware and how to let the network talk to the application that you built. So the apps that people are really used to building and very good at, um, as well as the hardware, there's many layers that people had to figure mm-hmm. out in between for them to talk to each other. This app and then this new platform that we're building essentially takes out of all of that um, and kind of lets you focus on what you're very good at, and which is the application mm-hmm. part. So the question with this stuff is always, how long does the modularity last? And so Mm. for the open parts library, for instance, what percentage of your orders now can be contained entirely in the library? I would say probably 20 to 30 percent is entirely on the library. Mm. But then also it's also much, much easier and much, uh, much, much faster if you have like 70, 80 percent, 90 percent of your components out of the open parts library. Mm. So I think um, for whether that's discussion on a standardized parts or modularity, it's never a binary 
decision of oh we're definitely going in a modularity or we're not mm-hmm. um the user's needs are so vast and so the market is so huge you're destined gonna have people who are more fit for modularity and then focus on the application part mm-hmm. and there's always gonna be people who really need to focus on developing their hardware and that kind of modularity may not necessarily cater to all of their customizable needs um so I think it's really just about providing more options to the to the to the market because there's more and more people out there who are interested in using these kind of things that's good so how's the Kickstarter doing so far uh, I think it's going really well we launched yesterday at nine a.m. Uh, Pacific time, so it's been twenty-five hours since, yeah. and then yeah. it's twenty thirty-six k already. And the goal and is it's already reached. It's already, it already passed the goal. Passed right? the goal. Yeah. And then the, this, uh, the early bird prize for a board is only nine dollars. So, mm-hmm. did you see this new Raspberry Pi that came out? That's like five dollars. No, the I Raspberry Pi Zero. Yeah. What What's your take on it? It's only five dollars, and that sounds very <laughs> exciting. I'm gonna have to order one and play with it. Mm. I wonder if they do, do you think they did it in response to that $9 computer that the chip came out? Yeah. Uh, Possibly. Yes. There's like this huge price war going on. Mm. And it makes total sense cuz like, you know, you look at the computing capability of a lot of systems, a lot of distributed or embedded systems, yeah. and and you just need something that can do basic arithmetic a couple of times a day. Yeah. That takes care of a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So everyone is like racing to serve that end of the market and then you mm. discover how many things that type of computer could could work yeah, with, do something with. Yeah. Have you tried chip I haven't. I haven't actually done that much with Raspberry Pis or anything. I live in microcontroller land most of the time still. I have a certain sense of romance about microcontrollers <laughs> and things that don't run Unix and Linux. What do you automatically by themselves? What's your go-to microcontroller? I like the STM thirty-two F ones. I want to learn how to use the thirty-two F fours because they have like a math coprocessor on them and DSP instructions, which is flipping crazy for a microcontroller. <laughs> but I haven't actually had an application I have to do that for yet. Most, of, most of the time, it's blinking LEDs. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's, you, you got you got hired by a lot of uh, a lot of clients people, who blink yeah. LEDs. Well, yeah. yeah, it's just a question of yeah, how, how do you want them to blink? Where do you want the LEDs to be? How fast do you want them? To how blink? many thousands of you know, LEDs would what, you like? Yeah, how many thousands of LEDs? You know what what causes them to blink? Again, so, on the Warner Herzog kick, like what do they feel? The LEDs. <laughs> yeah, why do they blink? Um, I don't know There's why I keep doing that on all of our podcasts, but I think <laughs> it's funny. But anyway, Speaking sorry. of this, shall we move on to tools? Oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of you, David, should we move on to tools? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yes, That's John, awesome. that sounds lovely. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> great segue. Um, so I guess I just did mine. Yeah, tools is a segment yeah. where we just talk about uh, tools in the stack that we use on a regular basis. Um, so, in uh, you know, in 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 your work with electronics, Meng Meng, what kind of tools do you use? What are your any favorites in particular that that you just that you live on? Um, I don't really actually work with electronics. Electronics or business development? Yes. What, what actually? What tools do you use for your for your stuff? Um, I mostly use Slack. Slack is virtually very mm. important in like. This whole startup business, everybody seems to be on Slack. Um, at Inseed, we use Bootcamp a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really how I keep updated with everything that's going on in China because um, working with an overseas uh, a company whose headquarters is overseas, the communication become extremely important. So um, 
it's sometimes hard for me to keep updated with everything that's going on in yeah. the Shenzhen firm and be a fair representation of what's happening there. Because um, your because so your job is kind of to be like the bridge between the the two sides, right? So you have to like talk to everybody on China team and also like talk to everybody on team. I haven't used bootcamp. What is that? Uh, it basically like? is kind of a project management. So, for example, the um, will link um, basically everybody assigns tasks, and then, then you update mm-hmm. what's your progress. So it's is. like Asana or something. Yeah, 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 similar to that. Um, so I kind of get a report every day of like things that are actually happening. So I know what's what's R and D progress, what's the marketing progress, and everything else that's going around it. And then I can try to provide help when needed because they don't really know what resources I have and mm-hmm. where we can match. So I kind of keep a close eye on what's happening and then feel like, oh, these things I can help from the US side, it will be much better to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. So this um, is actually a really interesting area for tools because um, it sounds like the coordination between the US and China teams are pretty informal. Like you're doing it over yeah. Slack, you're doing it with- Does China yeah. team with, use Slack as well? Um, not as often, it's mostly internal within the US, but- China is Slack available use. behind the, the firewall? Uh, I think it would be, but it, since people here use, mostly use it as like a chat format, yeah. um, we have QQ, Tencent yeah, QQ. already that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, China has its own solutions to yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I actually had to download QQ after seven years of not using oh, yeah, it yeah, since exactly. I joined Seed. Um, so it's quite interesting. It's very powerful, mm-hmm. I feel like. Do we so, really use email that much? Because QQ has a very, very good file transfer function, mm-hmm. um, people don't use email as often. So I feel like having worked in a Western professional sense and then kind of diving back into the China um, kind of professional working culture, mm-hmm. it took me a while to adjust to this. Uh, nobody really have a calendar to manage, so we kind of have to kind of figure out, are you available this time or available this time? But that also means that if you really have an urgent me- meeting, you can just kind of pull everybody together. It's like, yeah. okay, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. So because of, there's no that like email, WeChat, QQ, anything can happen with, in terms of WeChat, sometimes it can get hard to manage because mm-hmm. you don't have like a place where it can sit down. Okay, let me know, go through my emails. Um, things can happen really fast, especially Things really can fall the through t- the cracks a little bit. Exactly. And then especially with the time difference, I can get various things from various channels at various times of the day. Um, but that I think that's just something that you kind of have to work with and kind of become good at. And sometimes when people can ping me on WeChat, and if it's very ur- not very urgent, but I need to remember to do it later, I will say, hey, can you please send me an email yeah. to remind me of that? So there's a little bit of that. There's also It's also hard to do kind of work-life balance. That term doesn't really quite exist yeah. in China mm-hmm. yet. So I don't know. It's just a different culture. People kind of just have to kind of you get used to. Yeah. Um, is, is there is, is that the experience if you are like a giant client like Apple? Mm-hmm. Um, it is is stuff done by WeChat informally in kind of like a, a continuous, uh, you know, synchronous way, or are there much more formal ways of, of interacting with your contract yeah, manufacturers yeah, at that level? Yeah, definitely. When it's uh, much more uh, bigger scale, or if you work with any kind of like a Western origin company, so people who work for, like for example, Deloitte in China, people mm-hmm. who work for Unilever in China, they all adapt this Western style of professionalism of um, kind of people kind of are used to doing things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But then I think in hardware, we're exactly seeing that blurry of um, traditional phone call, mm-hmm. uh, VChat, um, and then emails. And then mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a combination. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we move on to the next segment then? Uh, this one is called uh, Click Spiral. <laughs> 
and it's where we each uh, talk about a thing that's absorbed a lot of our time on the internet at some point recently. Uh, it doesn't have to be hardware related, just something um, surprisingly absorbing. And uh, if if the listeners want to send us things t- that will send us into a uh, into a click spiral, David and I will take a look at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Uh, send us a link. We'll dump an afternoon into it, and then we'll come back and talk about it on the podcast. Uh, so, so we we start with the guest, uh, Mung Mung. Tell us about a recent click spiral. Uh, sure. Um, I recently got hooked onto this YouTube channel called School of Life. It's basically a bunch of videos about the history of big ideas. So it tells you why, like people's idea concept of love, how it kind of ex- evolved from like ancient times to now. Um, sounds very geeky and not very interesting it's not like some cat videos but <laughs> <laughs> which which are serious and interesting. i do spend yeah. a lot of time on those as well but i just found these, <laughs> um, these videos it talks about uh, yesterday i was um, basically going through videos of like why andy warhol was important and why he's like influential huh. to the world and then it just kind of drills us down to a very basic and it's just about like a very wide range of topics yeah but yeah. you can digest so, them in yeah. eight minutes I explainer videos about everything awesome so school of life yes on youtube mm-hmm. we'll we'll include a link in the the blog post that accompanies this podcast episode which listeners can find at o'reilly.com slash hardware david click spiral I have been spending less time on the internet lately and more time on Fallout 4 that came out. So can I talk about that instead? (laughs) Uh, So yeah, there's this, I'm I'm sure many of the listeners are into it, but uh, Bethesda Software recently released a game called Fallout 4, which I'm very excited about and many other people who are into video games are excited about because it's a post-apocalyptic future, 200 years in the future. Um, But instead of having like a strong, you know, OMG shoot the aliens video games, yeah, element, it's much more about exploration and interacting with the world and it takes place in in boston and i live in boston so that's like always kind of trippy because i can get you know talk to people who live in the tent city that is now in fenway park because whatever you can be like that's the dunkin donuts across from my house yeah exactly every time people come over to my house they're like oh yeah i don't like video games wait wait can we like go to my house real quick is that there (laughs) um and so i don't know it's it's nice to play a game that is less about like aggressively going from point A to point B and more about like, it's just like a world that they focused on building with with people all over the place in different settlements and you go and everyone has their own goals and you can choose how to treat them or not treat them. Mm-hmm. There's this whole crafting system where you pick up like junk from people's houses, abandoned houses and and you can like make modifications to your weapons and your items and, and you have to go to chemistry stations and cooking stations to like cook your potato starch, vegetable starch <laughs> down into like some adhesives so you can like make duct tape to like strap a thing under your whatever. Um, Is it like mist where you are occasionally presented with a giant panel of switches and you have to throw them in the, in the right Yeah, like I mean like sometimes there's like stuff you have to figure out. I mean there's this whole terminal hacking element if you want to like open some locked doors if you're in a base somewhere but you know it's just it's more about exploration and finding like weird little corners of the world because like you might be wandering around and like Boston Common and then like someone will tell you that like you need to go find somebody who has been missing for a while and they disappeared into the Park Street subway station so you go down there and you find out that there's this whole like place of people down there who have their own story and it was like a vault that people locked themselves in during the war and it's like inhabited by gangsters in like pinstripe suits that like don't exist anywhere else in the world but they have their own little community and they talk to you with different voices and stuff and like yeah you just like go all around the whole area i mean you can start your own settlement you can play the game 
like literally however you want. You don't even have to finish the story. You can like hang out in the part where you're building your own settlement and just spend time collecting resources and building buildings and like making making sure that all of your people have like clean sheets on their beds. <laughs> and like you can play Fallout like that if you want. Making friends um, with people. Yeah, sounds exactly. Like, sounds like you're spending a lot of time. <laughs> well, I want to I want to be more spending more time than I am lately because I've been traveling and and reading a lot. Mm. That sounds admirable, yeah. actually. I'm reading a lot about yeah. video games that I want to be playing, <laughs> oh. which is which is less admirable. <laughs> but I did make a pretty good dent in it before I came on this before I came on this trip. Nice, good, John. Go. How about you? All right. Well, um, so back in the in the '60s and early '70s, um, people in the U.S. there was there was this very modernist sort of engineering mindset about we're going to make the world better through dramatic feats of engineering. And one of the interesting things that came out of this were a handful of concepts for really advanced public transit. And, uh, you know, this this was the era when like BART was being designed and built in the Bay Area. Um, but people thought the next generation of this stuff was going to uh, involve some really interesting technologies. So one of these got built in the town of Morgantown, West Virginia, which is where West Virginia University is. And the university there is, a, is, is laid out uh, in a handful of different sort of pockets in a river valley and they needed to find a way to connect them. So they built what's called the, the Morgantown Personal Rapid Transit System, uh, which is a, a single line. It's about eight miles long, and it has a handful of stations. And the, the trains that go up and down this line, instead of just stopping at every station, dispatch individually to other stations. So as you walk into a station, you pay your fare. And as you're paying your fare, you hit a button that corresponds to the station you want to go to. And then a sign lights up and tells you where to wait. And a little car pulls up on a track Whoa. and you get in the car and it bypasses all the stations in the middle and takes you straight to the station you want to go to. Whoa. So there could be other people who also hit the station button on their way in. You're all together in the car or you might be the only person who's going there. Um, and it uh, so it, it you know, there are like four tracks at every station. And if you're not stopping at a station, you move to the, the bypass tracks and go straight through. What so, year did you say that this was in? Uh, it, it it was built um, in in the early 70s and opened mm -hmm. in 1975. And what's interesting is that it was actually built by Boeing, which, uh, as the Vietnam War wound down, was interested in finding new uh, lines of business that it could participate in. Yeah. Uh, now that the the Vietnam War line of business was was no longer was dwindling available, <laughs> so um, it, it's a fascinating system and uh, and kind of a glimpse into. Uh, you know, a future of public transit that for whatever reason collapsed in the, mm -hmm. in the late seventies and eighties, but people were very ambitious about this stuff and it's fascinating to read about it. So there's mm. the, uh, the, the Morgantown personal rapid transit system is an awesome Wikipedia article and you can find a lot of like enthusiast websites, people who are really into weird forms of rapid transit and they've written this up and put up pictures and diagrams and so on. Uh, and around the same time, there's some others like Pittsburgh almost put in something that they were calling Skybus, which was going to be individual kind of small driverless trains on rubber tires that would run on concrete sort of conduits elevated over the streets downtown um be very like modern and quiet yeah, what happened to monorails why don't we have monorails other than at disneyland i think uh they were ahead of their time man yeah <laughs> I, so i think actually the answer to that is that uh the switching apparatuses for monorails are are very uh cumbersome and and mm. mechanically uh you know complex yeah. and and heavy and so they make sense for things like airport people movers, where you have maybe one line and like two switches on the whole thing. But if you're trying to dispatch a lot of trains on a big complicated system, it becomes kind of kind of uh, kind of tough to do. Yeah. It's so what happened to those systems that they built in the 70s? Oh, well, so the Morgantown system is still there. Ah. And if you ever find yourself in Morgantown, West Virginia, I think you can ride it. I'm 
I would love to visit Morgantown, West Virginia sometime. Unfortunately, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not on the way to anything, but, but it's, <laughs> it's like, it's so, it's so futuristic. I want to see this. I want to like experience this vision of the seventies, which again, you can like, you can sort of experience by writing Bart, though, um, though Bart is uh, a vision of the future. Bart, Bart is a vision of the future from the fifties and sixties, yeah. very gray flannel suit, kind of California businessman, mm. you know, grand project. But uh, the, the Pittsburgh system was never built. Um, they went back to, to just having a light rail system there. It's funny to think about these like alternate alternate futures, right? Mm-hmm. Like even something that we take as much for granted is like a subway station with like the green line. At some point in the past, somebody had an idea to do it differently. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's funny to think about like, what would that be? Like? It's funny that it's so mind blowing. They're like, wait a second, I could like go down into a subway station, just push a button. Yeah. And then like a car will just come and take me directly there. And they figured that out in the seventies. And there's like yeah. some pros and some cons, but it's like, makes you realize that a lot of stuff that you take for granted could have been done differently. Yep. And it also puts in context of like perspectives of the discussions people have now, like Hyperloop and right, and right, right. That. Yeah, Hyperloop seems <laughs> seems like it might actually become a real thing in at least a couple of settings. I know, right? Which which when it was announced, I was like, Oh, Elon Musk is trolling us. This <laughs> yeah, is actually gonna happen. And then but he has a company. Yeah. It's out there. It's like I see photos from it sometimes of of like, you know, uh young, ambitious mechanical and electrical engineers carrying wrenches and welding things to each other and building these huge, you know, magnetic uh systems and, and vacuum tubes and whatever. Um yeah, that's extraordinarily exciting. And it is actually causing me to rethink, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the time to sort of uh, do something bold, replace the the California high-speed rail system with, with, with this, because that high-speed rail system, which I love, but it's just, it's kind of not, not going anywhere very fast. It's going to take 50 years to build and yeah. um, no paradigm is safe from inversion. Yep. It's amazing to think of like what what might have happened, what kind of infrastructure we might have if people had remained as adventurous in mm-hmm. in developing this stuff as they were in the in the sixties and, and early seventies. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's important, especially as as we have all this IoT stuff coming out that people are very excited about, but still, no one has quite exactly figured out like the killer app for IoT yet, mm-hmm. even though it's obviously very exciting and a thing that's going to happen. And I think it's important to think about when we're designing applications for these things, like what what is the future that we want to create with them? Because, yeah. you know, you can design things that will work across many different vectors, but actually thinking, you know, there's there's going to be an approach that people end up using. There could be many approaches. And yeah, yeah. just thinking about the implications of what we're building and how people are going to interact mm-hmm. with this. Yeah, is I think people also forget that we also feel like IoT is like new, cool thing. But I feel like people have been talking about IoT for quite a long time. And yeah. Um, the hype about it, and just like people are more ambitious about the the public tra- transit system as, in the seventies as that they're still now today. I think we'll mm-hmm. just always mm-hmm. have that aspiration of creating creating something greater. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the the podcast, Mangong. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And if yeah. people want to find you, where can they go online? Uh they can find me on Twitter. I think it's Mangmeng dot Chen M E N G M E N T dot C H E N. Cool. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner.